You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 11, Creative Concept Notes, October 29th, 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, all you Star Trek historians. Yes, you canonists, as I say that lovingly. Hey, even you tech heads, we love everybody. Everyone who enjoys deep diving into Star Trek, thanks to the courtesy of Gene's Files. The Real Trek Files. And this week, we're going to be going back to the early think tank days of Next Generation. We've got so much material on that. And yet, I recently came across a file that, in several ways, seems to speak to me to several of the uh, discussions that we're having these days about several of the current shows, as far as the way we look at all of our legacy favorites over the years, too. So listen. If you're a fan of the show, you know, check a file spell with an F, you know, to go to the Facebook page and check out this week's document. Um, hang on, we'll have an audio sample as always, and then you want to stick around, and I'll be right back with this week's guest. But the flavor of this new Star Trek emphasizes not military efficiency, but rather the maturity of humanity in our 25th century, in which quality of life is considered enormously more important than technological advances. Thus, we won't need Prussian Guard uniforms and saluting and all that, except where it is retained as a form of courtesy and occasionally as a spot of color in their lives. Uniforms. Uniforms is nothing more than a spot of color in their lives. Now, that's a new way to look at <laughs> That's another way to look at this uh, aspect of our, our wondrous Star Trek uniforms and background that keeps so many people up at night uh, and drives so much pleasure in fandom. Hey, look, this is an interesting um, first round uh, memo. This is actually a Gene Roddenberry memo. We're so used to seeing Bob Justman and David Gerald and Dorothy Fontana's. Uh, in these think tank days that I thought this was rather interesting. It's it's right from the horse's mouth, right from the great bird's beak. And uh, I thought it would be fun to dive in and see what this means for what we know about the next generation and where we are today. And you know what? Who better? Who better to dive in with me than our friend, friend of the show, producer of the show, and you know him from Mission Log and Mission Log Live, John Champion. John, what, what, isn't this interesting? I, I, this yeah. made me realize how little we see of Gene. Gene, I think, was reacting to everyone else's memos, but here he's actually put some thoughts down. Yeah, you know, in the years that we've been doing the Trek Files together, um, you're right. There are so many from these early days. You see a lot mm -hmm. of Dorothy. You see a lot of David Gerald. You see a lot of Bob Justman. You see, well, of course, notoriously that memo from Paramount saying, hey, here's our idea for a new Star Trek show. Right. And Gene writing back, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> <Here's>, <laughs> uh, uh, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it my way. Um but this is one of those rare ones where we really see specifics from Gene about what he wants, the elements of the show that have been talked about. And, you know, particularly in those lunch meetings that uh, uh, Dorothy mm -hmm. and David, everybody would have together and Susan Sackett yeah. would report on. And here he is responding to those saying, OK, here's the direction now that you've come up with all these ideas. And what I thought was interesting, too, was we we have 
Gene's eventual pronouncement on things. But aside from individual uh, interviews over the years, this was really a, a cut to the bone kind of comment on, on several topics that caught my eye. And we all say, oh, well, we know what Gene thought, or we see what other people are suggesting, and then it eventually evolves a certain direction. But I really appreciated, there's two or three topics here especially, where Gene really cuts to the chase and says what he means more, more succinctly, more directly than I think we see even in the writer's guides and some of the other notes that we have. And yeah. so let's dive in. I, I, that's what yeah. I, uh, I mean, really I, I think taking this. these in order, and, and this is late 1986, so they're, they're still, you know, early to mid <laughs> development. Oh, they're on very, all of yeah, this. I think, I think yeah. October was when they got started. So they're just a couple of weeks into the process. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, I mean, let, let's go in order here. So in his parlance here, the handicapped crew member, we would say disabled crew member now. Um, but he's just saying point by let's build into a series regular the handicap of blindness and he underlines that like here's what we're doing mm -hmm. and then he talks about the prosthetic device that gives them somewhat normal sight but more importantly something beyond that and i like how he links that back to how the tricorder mm -hmm. in the original star trek gave them additional sensory input uh so that was just right off the of course we know what becomes of geordie laforge so this is right. great yeah. Right, right, right. And yeah. his whole challenging uh, the concept of what is a disability and what if the disability yeah. uh, enhancement makes them more enhanced without external tools than our, than our uh, humanoid mm -hmm. crew members. And just yeah. a challenge to that whole concept, which, yeah, we, this, is, this was one we knew. And then the next one is the concept of children, which, you know, to this day yeah. is still debated. And every time there's a new series rollout, it seems yeah. there's at least a little echo ripple discussion or debate about this. Yeah, and rightfully so, because I, I get, first of all, I, I like where Gene is coming from saying, okay, we can't have children underfoot where they're just, you know, always right. there, but it does make sense that you have this huge ship on these long missions, so you can show that these people have lives outside of their jobs, and part of their lives is they have families, and maybe they're going someplace, or, or uh, you know, have this idea of replicating a day at the ocean or in the country complete with scented fresh air. Okay, holodeck. Um, <laughs> and, but it's something that we always came back to on Mission Log, which is, okay, if you go with that premise that you have children on board, again, makes total sense that families could have mm -hmm. this experience together. Love that idea, an untapped thing in Star Trek. But they are also running into danger on a regular basis. And anytime Captain Picard or anybody after Picard says, uh, you, you know, here are the command codes for self-destruct, there are families on board at this time, too. Forget you know. red alert, separate, and go into battle. Yeah. And that cuts to the quick. Well, you know, yeah. every Star Trek, I love to say, is a pendulum swing to what came before. Yeah. And, and yeah. there was so much... 80s versus 60s, we see that in the, in the design aesthetic, the technology unchained. People love to say carpet up the walls and counselor on the bridge. Yeah. Well, that was part of the swing away from the submarine look of the 60s, which was part of its time, you know, the World War II yeah. carryover. And part of that was forcing people to make decisions, career or family, men and women. Yeah. You know, everyone. And, well, and and a hundred years later, do we force our Starfleet people to make that decision or is it an option to bring them along? And right. if they come along, then, yes, we'll have 
we'll have uh, school rooms and we'll have gymnasiums and auditoriums and kids programs and, you know, the whole thing. They give them a real life where they're not sacrificing to come along yeah. with the parents that didn't sacrifice to begin with. I think those are all really, really good impulses on which to build this world of this new star uh, starship, um, specifically, you know, how this enterprise operates and what the what the real mission mm -hmm. is here. Um, and he acknowledges how big this ship is. I mean, think about it. The Enterprise D, which hasn't even been designed at this point, but the right. Enterprise D has about a thousand people on board so more than double what we had on the 1701 in star mm -hmm. trek but you're talking about a thousand people compare that to a modern uh, cruise ship where passengers and crew exceed 4,000 or whatever so you're talking <laughs> about a ship with a huge amount of empty space that can easily accommodate families and and leisure time and schools and all these other things yes especially yeah. that last sentence in this section our people remember our people are out there for five and maybe ten years at a time this yeah. was at a time when they were still debating what would the enterprise d's mission be yeah we tend to think as it evolved of they're out there but they kind of they find a dock they find a spaceport they find a starbase they're yeah. always you know exchanging personnel offloading taking on new at the beginning they were actually thinking about this is people signing aboard a mission that would be off and not checking back home and taking right. on new crew and exchanging uh, as, as it evolved. And at the time, they're thinking uh, five and 10 year mission. And that's another impetus here toward, are you going to have kids? Will they be with you? Or are you giving that part of your life up for 10 years or, yeah. or postponing it? Yeah. And that's what drove that. You know, it, they backed off that obviously after a year or two, but, um, but that was yeah. part of the thinking here. But now, yeah, well, Here this we all to... neat, neatly dovetails into this next point. Oh, this is the <laughs> yeah. part that still amazes me that we had this debate to this day. And and as all these new series roll out and they're mm -hmm. set at different time periods, this is a this is a topic that comes up time and time again. Yeah. So armaments and militarism, and that, that's what the reading was from, is, you know, what is the emphasis or de-emphasis here on Star Trek's uh, perceived militarism? And, uh, you know, he, talk, he says, OK, well, yeah, we have phasers and photon torpedo banks, but uh, that's not what we want to do. We want to emphasize our visit to strange new worlds rather than on space villains. And I keep thinking that... This is a debate that there is no really right answer here. And this is a debate that will always get kicked around by fans who are watching old series and new series. You know, I, I say to myself that Star Trek is best when it is about ideas and exploration and the human adventure, to coin a phrase. But then right. you ask 100 Star Trek fans, what's your favorite movie? And generally, it's going to land on The Wrath of Khan, which is a movie mm -hmm. about a person in a spaceship fighting another person in a spaceship. And or, if not Wrath of Khan, it'll be First Contact. Yeah, 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 <laughs> which is a haunted house movie in space. Or the Undiscovered you know? Country. I mean, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. Um, so it, it's, I, I, I get it. I, I get where Gene's heart is here, but then, you know, there is no sort of black and white dividing line between what makes good Star Trek or doesn't. Well, what I love, though, is I think you alluded to it in the in the reading, but also another part here, uh, the... Uh, the end here where we don't need Prussian guard uniforms and saluting and all of that. <laughs> definitely, definitely a here's Gene getting the reins of his baby back 
uh-huh. away from the direction things took in the 80s with the, with the Har Bennett movies. Yeah. He, you know, he's and take, the monster, he's what taking, we call the monster yeah. maroons and all that, but all the brass and all the rank braiding and all the, mem- you know, all the symbology on the uniforms that was, yeah. th- that was he, a step beyond. He, yeah. He's taking a swipe at that. And I tell you, as someone who, well, both of us have very recently rewatched the motion picture, mm-hmm. there is a stark contrast between that and the look of Star Trek II. And, and you can just feel... Gene's sentiment here mm-hmm. <laughs> about let's let's not keep pushing things in a militaristic direction. You can just feel the eighties, folks. You can just yeah. feel the the Reagan eighties yeah. moving that way. And because also, I love the opening sentence of this section too, that the armaments mm-hmm. and militarism are going to be de-emphasized over previous Star Trek series, which there was one is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very much de-emphasized over the Star Trek movies. So there again, it's like a double-edged swipe, as you said. Yeah, uh, he wants to back off the way that, and you know, with that eighty-year buffer, you can work it into canon if you're going to worry about that. And and they do, and they talk about, hey, it's been it's been decades. And again, another sign for having cling, uh, having Worf on the bridge to, as a visual reminder that things have changed, and it's not the the twenty two sixties or even the twenty two seventies and eighties that it's been nearly a century and things can evolve. And it's good cover for him to be able to pull the basic philosophy of the show back. Back in this direction, but boy, he yeah. he speaks to it um, so directly there. Yeah, and and then this this grasp for trying to to they they went around and around with this. Yeah, they really yeah. wanted to show the technology advanced to the point where they were just sitting in a living room in a lounge, right, running right. the ship here with the bridge. Yeah, that that's so interesting. The bridge equivalent, and I I think it it feels like at least they found a compromise on that with how the bridge eventually looked on TNG with that big kind of wall being the view screen rather than just a a, a big TV screen, you know. Um, but it, it almost sounds like he's going for something else here, uh, which is something other than the bridge. And we do spend a lot of time in the ready room. We spend a lot of time in other areas of mm-hmm. the ship. You still need that command center to be a command center. But he is definitely trying to soften it here a bit. So I, I, I do appreciate that. Yeah, well, they were very yeah. much trying. And you can look back. There's, there's the Andy Probert early sketches based on what they wanted to do. Much more informal, less the command center, submarine, military. You know, people, as I think one of the terms is people hunched over buttons. Right. You know, they wanted the right. ship to be right. so automated and the technology level to be so automated that they only needed the human crew to make the really executive decisions. And so much yeah. would be automated. And, and by definition is we forget how automated the D has to be. Yeah. Until we get into a battle situation or a specific science science mission. But the other thing that's that's interesting here that comes up, I swear, every single time we have a new <laughs> a new series. Yeah. And this is this is if I'm going to play a canonista these days, this is one of the things that I'm sad to see because the view screen originally yeah. Yeah. the original series, and yeah. here again, and here's Gene specifically stating it's not a hole. Yeah. In yeah. the bulkhead, it's a machine, it's a viewing. It's yeah. a viewing machine. It's a piece of technology. It's not a simple window. No matter that it's made out of transparent aluminum or whatever you want yeah, to say, right. programmable matter, it's right. a machine that's, you know, it's, it's programmable to show any aft view. We can overlay science and, and all that. Yeah, and I, and I yeah. understand the modern shows overlay science out the wazoo, obviously, but I just like the idea that it wasn't a simple window, that it, yeah. it was actually a functional piece and... I don't, know, I don't know how you feel about it, but no, I, I, I like I, Gene going to the trouble to yeah. reaffirm that here. 
I, I totally agree because it, it frustrates me that they keep going like back and forth and back and forth. And it's I, it just guys, come on, like we, we can settle on this at least that that it is a complex system of sensors and cameras and whatever that is putting together this image, mm -hmm. which is why it's so easy to switch back and forth between a communications channel or a different view of the direction that you're traveling, whatever. Yeah, just just let it be that. Right. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of technology, then his yes. next point is a transporter, which of course comes up and not a big deal here, but this is like, yeah, it's, it's what we already figured out. This just has a bigger range and we'll figure out what that range is later. You know, and that I think every show keeps that kind of loose. Well, although <laughs> at prescient here, as we saw them experiment with in the Kelvin movies, uh, let's feel our way in that all it definitely does not allow us to simply transport our people around the galaxy, which yeah, was a little bit played yeah. fast and loose that had to be reined back in, you know, right, back in. right. But exactly. there you go. You're talking yeah. about it in 1986, the danger of letting that go. And um, then let's talk about quite a bit of foreshadowing, the mind swarm. Okay, mm -hmm. this is two sentences, which, I, you know, uh, please look over the print of my Smithsonian prologue where I describe the socio-organism, then let's discuss. Borg anybody? I mean, th <laughs> this is where, mm -hmm. I, I love this, the two sentences in this leads to what we can only assume is these very complex ideas about a system like the Borg where you have uh, uh, a hive mind and this is what's on Gene's mind and it's one of those ideas that takes root and of course, uh, you, you know, makes Star Trek history. Drives the storytelling yeah. for the next two or three decades? Is that right. what you're trying to yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That but we've come is... back to again with Picard. Uh, again, yeah, yeah. And there it is just in a couple of sentences from 1986. And then and finally, <laughs> children. Children again. Again, <laughs> again, yeah. And, you know, he, he's pretty straightforward about this here. And something that I really like where he says, okay, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time with our crew people outside of that, but we do need some sense of who they are and some sense of normality. And I really like that. I, I think it's wise here because, okay, you had the limit of three seasons of the original series, two of which Gene was more intimately involved with. Um, and then, you know, animated and then a handful of movies. A up little to this bit of point. experimentation with the, the animated series. A lot. Yeah, right. yeah. But now you have this possibility with the, the syndication model of being able to do so much more, which means, all right, we can spend some time with our crew when they're not just on the clock. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's one of those other really important elements of Star Trek is that you don't lose sight of the humanity of the people involved. Right. And remember, yeah. we're, we're living at the time this is written, we've lived through the ensemble revolution in how, in how TV storytelling is structured. So yeah. we've gone from, you know, lead second banana and everyone else that the original series was was part of in the 60s to the, the whole Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law revolution and that all the series since have benefited from. Now we have a larger and larger and larger cast and not just that, but the regulars and the recurring cast. So, mm -hmm. of course, it opens up the door to uh, to showing what the, and, you know, I think. At the time, people, here's Gene talking in 86, but well, we don't really want to see what they do in their off hours. But maybe, you know, a few years go by and start, you know, day to day, 
I mean, yeah. on down the line. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, Orphan Alexander and Deanna. I mean, yes, yeah. we do want to see what they're doing in there. The O'Briens on DS9, we do yeah, see well, what they're doing. Um, maybe not so much of them. But okay. <laughs> Everybody else. <laughs> I'm pointing to the examples. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. But, but what I'm saying is it wasn't strictly the gung-ho, you know, square-jawed, straight-ahead adventure that the original series debuted with. All those, yeah. all those, you know, they and even if they're just B-stores, but it all became part of the of the buffet of tools you could use to tell stories with and, and yeah. illuminate what your what your premise is going to be that week. Well, this memo is pretty remarkable in that respect, that it's just a couple of pages and a, a few very specific items, but you can just, you can literally just trace all those ideas from TOS to Gene's mindset in 1986 to what we got on screen a year later. It, it's just kind of perfect, like that that link in a couple of pages. And that it still speaks on so many topics, military or science organizations, you know, explorers. Right. Yeah, what are yeah, they doing yeah. out there? It still speaks yeah. to us today, so it's amazing. Thanks, yeah. John. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available right there at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimacek.com. That's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our T Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.